Do you like all things spooky? How about chilling stories that have you reaching for the covers? In this podcast, we're going under the covers to delve into all things from chilling haunts to your worst nightmares. I'm Morgan. And I'm Emily. And this is why we don't Don't sleep sleep alone. Hello. You're supposed to harmonize. Oh, I can do that. Give me one more chance. Ready? Okay. One, two, three. Hello. Hello. That was, that was great. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be here all week. Uh, yeah, we will. We're here every week on Wednesdays. It's when we release episodes. Um, whoa, whoa. Hump day. How, how are you doing, Morgan? I am doing great. If you guys don't know already, Reagan is, Reagan doing is here. Great. Yeah. Okay, Reggie Peggy. Oh, my yeah. God. Reagan, we don't have time for this. Reagan, Reagan, come over here. He just has a lot of opinions. It's fine. He has a lot of things to say. That's all. And he's got a lot of things to do apparently today. Yeah. And we actually have been doing a lot. Ooh, segue once again. There's the segue. Uh, We recently just made a new website. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's and by we, Emily. Yeah. <laughs> Emily made us a new website. It's not anything crazy fancy, but it is super organized and mm-hmm. really, really nice. Uh, you can contact us directly through there. There's a donate feature if you feel like you want to donate anything, which is totally not required. Nope. Obviously, that's the beauty of podcasts is not having to pay anything. And They're just being free. Humble. Yeah. Exactly. It's just being able to get free information. And uh, we also have been doing a lot on our TikTok and our social media again. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have gone to the dark side. I am actively participating in TikTok now. Look at that. I'm doing it, guys. I'm doing my best. (laughs) And I'm kind of funny. Please. uh, I put Reagan on there twice already. Yeah. If you want to see cute Reggie Peggy, you heard his little cries, so you know he's really cute. And uh, also just want to do shout out Landon Smooth. Thanks, BB. BB, that is one of my uh, besties, honestly. I love Landon. Him and I have known each other for a couple years. And he uh, recently just donated $25, and he's just the sweetest guy in the world, and I love him so much. And the fact that he doesn't live in Orlando anymore makes me very sad i met him once and he was a very nice fellow he's just the sweetest guy in the world and he's just like this giant ball very tall yeah he's he's so tall guys he's so tall and he's just this giant ball of like love and energy and i am so excited that he loves us and loves his podcast (laughs) so just wanted to shout him out because he's the best and super appreciate him and all of his support. And we also appreciate you guys for listening in every week. We appreciate it. We pre- Yeah. We're, we're just very appreciative, honestly. Honestly, because uh, we didn't really think anyone was going to listen. <laughs> yeah. So pretty cool. Yeah. It's nice to know that there are other people on the other side of this mic. Yeah. Metaphorically speaking. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm on the other side because <laughs> there's two of us. But it was really good, Morgan. I'm glad you added that in. Uh, Literally, as those words were coming out of my mouth, I'm like, wow. Oh. I sound stupid. I'm already sweating. Oh, I'm sweating. I feel like every time uh, we record here, I sweat so much because I feel like I always get bad stories to tell whenever I'm in here. And uh, I'm sweating a lot. So I think I'm going to go with my story first. <laughs> Fucking go for it. So uh, today. It's a doozy. Yeah, today we're going all the way to uh, Kansas City, Missouri. Missouri. <laughs> Why did you <laughs> Well, so Megan, uh, my old roomie, she is from partially kind of Kansas City. And um, who was, maybe it wasn't her. I don't know. I was talking to someone and they said that their mom or something pronounces it Missouri and not Missouri because if you're from Missouri then you pronounce it Missouri but no one actually does it's just her mom or something like that and maybe it wasn't Megan I don't know I think I'm going crazy either way we're going all the way to Kansas City Missouri and our story starts uh early in the morning on uh, January 2nd 
1935, when a man named Ronald T. Owen checked into the hotel president. He didn't have any bags or seemingly any belongings with him and only paid for a one-night stay at the time. Weird. Which, yeah, kind of weird. He doesn't have anything on him and only pays for a one-night stay. Uh, kind of interesting. And he requested specifically to have an interior room without a window facing the street <laughs> and towards the top of the hotel. I am uncomfy. That sounds like someone trying to commit suicide. But why? you would want it facing the street then. Oh, yeah, I guess so. You know, so it's Oh, Emily. Kind of I've been thinking about this. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. And uh, he was given the room 1046 or 1046. I don't know. I, I 1046. That's how my brain reads it, which was on the 10th floor, mm-hmm. a.k.a. 1046, you know. We're smart. Everyone's smart. We can all pick up on that. (laughs) You're doing uh, great, Emmy. You're doing great. It's early. The bellhop, uh, Randolph Propst, accompanied him upstairs to show him his room. And also at this time, there was like elevator operators. Yeah, because, you know, it's the 30s. And Mm -hmm. so people actually operate the elevators anytime we talk about a hotel from a long time ago i immediately think tower of terror oh (laughs) that's all i think of i can no i think like that's the vibe i'm feeling i definitely think american horror story or american horror story yeah yeah that one i absolutely love that season not gonna lie love it that was probably one of my favorite seasons not only for lady gaga but (laughs) it's just a really good one yeah that one was really good also, uh, Schmidt from New Girls in it. And also, like, yeah, I completely him. forgot about yeah, that. Yeah, he dies almost instantly. Yeah, it's fine. <gasps> Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Just kidding. If the you show's watched... literally been out for like, yeah. I don't want to say how long because then it'll make me feel and in, like time has passed. He also dies within literally like the first like minute of the show. Yeah, so. it's the first episode. Yeah, and it's the first Which scene. Which one is it with Adam Levine? What? Adam Levine is in in one of the like opening credits of the I will Google this. You continue. And so he shows him his room and then watched Owen take out a hairbrush, a comb and a toothbrush, not and toothpaste from his pocket <laughs> and place them above the sink. Nope, that's not right. A hairbrush and a comb are the same thing. I got brains. It's a toothbrush, not a hairbrush. A comb and toothpaste. Oh, where is my hairbrush? <laughs> oh, where is my brain cell? Oh, where, oh, where, oh, where, oh, where, oh, where are my brain cells? Owen had very distinctive features in a personality that staff could remember very easily. First off, he gave them a Los Angeles address when he checked in, and this was in Kansas City, Missouri in 1935. So I'm sure getting like a Los Angeles address was probably kind of cool. You know, it's Kansas City. Yeah. He also had a cauliflower ear and a mm. visible uh, like scar on his temple that they believe to be kind of consistent with someone who's a professional wrestler. And the scar was in a hexagon shape. Like it was kind of shaped, weird. which was weird. But did you figure out what? I did. Okay. What is it? It was Asylum. Okay. Oh, I love Asylum. That's my favorite season. Adam Levine is in the, um, him and his girlfriend are like exploring the Asylum in like the beginning credits of like the very first episode or something like that. Yeah. And then I think he like dies within that episode or they show the second part of that opening thing later, later in like the second episode. Mm -hmm. But that's what I was thinking of too. I was like, "Mm, was he in that one or so? Yeah. Now my brain feels better. The itch has been scratched. I'm so glad. Thank you. And after he checks in, he actually leaves for a short amount of time. So he checks in, drops his stuff, and then leaves. Mm-hmm. Comes back very quickly, kind of. And this is still kind of early in the morning. And uh, not too much later, one of the hotel maids, uh, Mary Soptic. Sop- Sop- Soptic. Mm. Your guess is as good as mine. 
opens the room to find Owen and apologizes for just opening the door Mm -hmm. because the previous nights there was like a woman in there and I guess they were kind of comfortable with each other so she would just come in and you know tidy up the place leave some towels and leave kind of thing so she wasn't expecting to find a man Mm -hmm. and she quickly apologizes and is kind of confused because Owen is just sitting in the chair kind of by the window with the blinds drawn so it's dark in there and there's just a really dim lit lamp that's on and he tells her to just go ahead and clean the room anyways even though it's dark and (laughs) he doesn't want the lights turned on and uh she's thinks it's a little weird but whatever and once Uh, She goes to leave. He tells her to leave the door unlocked because he's expecting friends to arrive in a few minutes. And uh, she later is quoted saying that he was either worried about something or afraid. And that's what she picked up from it and his demeanor and stuff. And then around 4 p.m., she made her rounds to the hotel guest again because apparently they did this multiple times a day. Mm -hmm. And this time she offered uh, clean towels And then when she arrived to the room, 1046, she found Owen lying on the bed, fully dressed, with all the lights off. And she could see that there was a handwritten note next to the bed that read, Dawn, I'll be back in 15 minutes. Wait. That's it? Yeah, so she leaves the towels and she just leaves. And then next morning on January 3rd, She comes back to the room, 1046, around 1030 a.m., and the door was locked this time, but from the outside, which is weird, I don't don't understand this, so I guess sometimes hotels back in the day, you would lock them from the outside, not the inside. I don't know. It doesn't make any sense to me, and so all she thought was, oh, he locked it on his way out or something, and so she just uses the master key to open the door. And she finds Owen sitting in the chair again, like how she went in the day before, not in the bed anymore, but he's in the chair, but in the complete dark again, and he's on the phone, and all you hear him say is, no, Don, I don't want to eat, I am not hungry, I just had breakfast, no, I'm not hungry. And he hangs up and starts talking to uh, Suptic about her job and the hotel president. And he's asking if it's like a residential hotel or just a regular one and if she took care of the entire floor. And so they kind of like make small talk. And then he also tells her about how some of the other hotels in the area have like outrageous prices Mm -hmm. and that's why he's there. And she just is like, oh, yeah, you know, they make small talk, whatever. She's done cleaning, so she leaves. And then again, around 4 p.m., she comes to drop off the clean towels But after arriving to the door, she hears two men talking and was like, oh, I shouldn't just walk in. You know, I'm going to knock. So she knocks and says, oh, I have clean towels. And another man that's not Owen's voice responds saying, we don't need any. But she knows that they need towels because she takes all the dirty towels in the morning to clean them to bring back fresh ones later in the day. So he has no towels in the room. Yeah. So, she thought it was just a little weird. Whatever. Later that night, she goes home, whatever, and uh, there's a woman in the room next to Owen now in room 1048, and she claims to start to hear men and women shouting in the room, but then there's also a party in room 1055, like a little bit Mm -hmm. down the hall. So, no one really says anything or thinks anything of it because... There's a party in one of the rooms at like 1.30 in the morning. And then there's also them shouting in the other room. Whatever. It's a hotel. You know, I've heard things too and I just mm-hmm. leave it alone. Mostly because I think it's a ghost. <laughs> and I get scared. And he said, nah. Uh, I'm good. <laughs> I don't claim this neg- negative energy. And there was also at the same time, this story gets very confusing. I'm just letting you guys know right now. It's very confusing, so I'm going to try to keep us in line, but we'll see what happens. At the same time all this is going on, there's another woman that enters the hotel, 
and uh, she was thought to kind of be a sex worker. She kind of frequented the hotel and the hotels around. They knew of it, and uh, she was requested to room 1026. But once she gets in the elevator and she goes up, she goes to room 1026. Only three minutes later, she calls the elevator again, and she tells the elevator operator that her client isn't in there and she's gone to this guy before she knows who he is and he's always there so she doesn't know if she got the room number wrong or kind of what happened but she was like I'll just wait in the first floor and see if you know I get another call or if he comes out or something and so she waits at the bottom floor to see if anything's gonna happen which it kind of did a different man shows up, not Owen, and together they go up to the 10th floor. And then about an hour after that, the woman leaves and she goes to the elevator operator and goes down to the 9th floor. And then she stays in there until about 4.15 a.m. when she calls for the elevator again and leaves. And then 15 minutes later... The first guy that she went up to the 10th floor with calls the elevator, but from the 9th floor and goes down and says that he needed to go for a walk and to get some air. And that's it. Okay. So there's, there's like some weird little things. And some people think that this part is kind of really important and crucial because the woman in room 1048 claims to hear men and women shouting mm -hmm. and uh, the original room that the woman thought she was called to was 1026 they think that maybe uh she got the numbers wrong and she was supposed to go to 1046 mm -hmm. and so then whenever the man came into the hotel and they went up to the 10th floor together they went to the room together okay. to 1046 okay okay so you're kind of following now yes. okay so that's why people think this is important but it genuinely has never actually really been connected to it uh -huh. it's just like these are all the events that happened the night before. This is pretty interesting information. Right. Uh, but it was never, like, officially connected in any way. Mm -hmm. It's just, like, speculation, really. Which, like, I can see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. There could be some foul play here. Yeah, you know. And then at around 7 a.m. on January 4th, so the guy originally only bought one night. Now he's two nights. Mm-hmm. Uh, the switchboard operator, Della Ferguson, because, you know, back in the day, there was all the switchboards. Switchboards. Where you got the phones and the switchboards. And the ladies who had to do the... Oh. Yeah. I always think of uh, Marvelous Miss Maisel. Yeah. Oh, an amazing show. And the switchboards get me so excited. <laughs> I, like, looking Emily at Emily would have been a switchboard operator. Oh, I would pop off to be a switchboard operator, honestly. And uh, she was about to do the wake-up call to room 1046, because I guess he requested to be woken up at 7 a.m. And uh, the phone was actually off the hook, so she couldn't call. Mm -hmm. And so she just told one of the bellboys, Props, the one who brought him up the day two days before, to uh, run up there and just check what was going on and put the phone on the hook. And when he gets there, the room was locked. So he knocked on the door and the only response he heard was turn on the lights. But the door was still locked and the guy never, Owen, never got up to let him in. And uh, so he just kept knocking like, hey, you got to open up the door kind of. And he kept knocking and uh, nothing happened. So then he just yelled, put the phone back on the hook and left. That was it. And then 10 minutes later, the phone was still off the hook. So the operator is like, someone needs to go put this phone back on the hook. Like, mm -hmm. this is annoying, you know? And so another, a different bellboy gets sent up and he hears a response. He like tells them, hey, you got to put the phone back on the hook. And he hears a response saying, all right, from the guy that was inside. And then about an hour later... The phone is still off the hook. So this is the third time. What the hell? And uh, this is a third bellboy, a different bellboy. His name is Harold Pike. He goes upstairs because they're like, the first two bellboys didn't do anything. Yeah. Like, you just got to go. And the door was still locked, but he had the master key and he was like, I'm just going to let myself in. 
I'm going to put the phone back on the hook and then I'm going to leave. Because mm-hmm. obviously this guy is probably drunk and mm-hmm. like asleep, something like that. And he goes in and he notices Owen laying on the bed, completely naked, with a really dark spot on the sheets. He doesn't think anything of it, apparently. He shit himself. <laughs> <laughs> like, he just thinks that it's a shadow. right and puts the phone back on the hook and then dips out like you didn't you didn't see the giant dark stain you didn't turn the lights on you didn't want to investigate you just thought it was weird that this man was naked in bed with a doc probably just didn't want to look at the naked man i guess but as as you'll continue to hear it's like one thing after another where you're like you just didn't you didn't investigate (laughs) You just, I was watching, uh, there's a BuzzFeed Unsolved video of this, and um, one of the guys goes, it's like, he's waiting for something horrible to happen, and then they go and they're like, uh, not good enough. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. And so they're just like, it seems like they just like continuously go in there waiting for it to be like really, really bad. Yeah. But it's it's not. not. And so they just leave. Okay. um, you know, whatever. And then uh, two hours later, after putting the phone back on the hook, at 10.30 a.m., guess what happens? The phone is off the hook. The phone is off the hook. What? <laughs> the phone is off the hook again. And so the first bellboy, Propst, goes back upstairs. Emily, what? I know. Okay, so the He's phone is dead, right? Just wait. The phone's <laughs> off the hook. So then Props is like, oh, my God, this is the fourth time this has happened. I'm going to go upstairs. And uh, he knocks on the door. Doesn't hear any response. The door is locked. Uh-huh. And uh, then he he has the master key and he opens the door and is greeted by the sight of Owen on his elbows and knees, holding his head two feet away from the door, covered in blood. From a blunt force trauma to his head and stab wounds in his chest. So once Props turns on the lights, because he's like, oh my God, you know. Now it's bad enough that I'll turn on the lights. There's blood everywhere. It's in the bathroom. It's on the ceiling. It's on the walls. It's on the bed. Like it's absolutely everywhere. And he starts to freak out. And so he like runs downstairs to go get the manager to come back up. And whenever they get back up to the room... Owen has inched his way even closer and closer to the door to where now they can only open the door about six inches because his, like, body is, like, lumped there because he's still alive. Like, he's alive. Yeah. And he's, like, been trying to get himself, I guess, closer to the door to get out. And so they can only open the door, like, six inches because his body is there. Uh And they get in there and they're actually able to pick him up and they take him to the hospital. And then once they get to the hospital... They realized that he had been bound with a cord around his neck, his wrists, his ankles, and he has, like, severe bruising around his neck, like someone Mm -hmm. was trying to strangle him to death. And then when asked who did this to him, he says, nobody. Bruh. (laughs) And that he had fallen and hit his head on the bathtub. And then when asked if he was suicidal, he said no. And then became unconscious and shortly after midnight on january 5th he passed away so (laughs) he tries to say that nothing no one did that to him like he did it to himself but like dude's got stab wounds yeah he probably there's probably some sort of criminal activity going on there's blood splatters all over the Mm -hmm. ceiling all over the wall i mean when you beat someone up like blood blood spews yeah it goes everywhere my thing is is like if there are no clean towels in the room, how did that person clean themselves off and clean themselves up before they left the room? How did any of this happen? Dun, dun, dun! You know? So, it's just very, On very next weird. week's episode of The Twilight Zone. Yeah. And, uh, and police start to investigate this story, like, immediately, because... They think it's insanely weird. There's this guy. He's all beat up. You know what I mean? He just died, but he won't say who killed him, even though he's going to die. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't you just say who, like, who your murderer is? It's not like they're going to do anything, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, so they go back to the crime scene, 
and they determined that the blood had dried and probably been sitting there since around like 5 a.m like four or five in the morning Mm -hmm. and they're like oh that's kind of that's kind of weird but it's also kind of consistent with like the first visit where he said that he saw like a dark stain on the sheets yeah it's very weird and then there's like another weird thing where they never found any weapons in the room at all so there's no way owen could have stabbed himself because there was no knife in the room in the room or any type of a weapon yeah he just tried to claim that like the blunt force trauma to the back of his head was from slipping and falling and hitting himself on the bathtub right because you know that would definitely cause a skull fracture because he fractured the right side of his skull for sure you know? I think it could happen. And then he just went Fall and started and stabbing himself yeah, on the bed. You know, like, put me out of my misery. You know, he tried to put the phone off the hook to get some help the first time and still. Yeah. But they never found any of his belongings either. So they never found the comb, the toothbrush or the toothpaste or any of the hotel provided amenities such as like towels or soaps and shampoos. Because I guess they always provided those like how hotels do. Mm-hmm. And those were gone too weird right and uh what they did find though is a necktie from a new jersey company which was weird because he was from los angeles Mm -hmm. then uh they found a broken glass in the sink because the room provided two glasses you know how rooms do Mm -hmm. and one of them was broken and in the sink uh there was a hairpin a safety pin uh unsmoked cigarettes and a full bottle of diluted sulfuric acid what (laughs) and then i feel like this is a game of clue (laughs) and nothing freaking makes sense speaking of clue i was supposed to go to a game night with uh, landon whenever Mm -hmm. he was here and i guess they played clue and he almost like within the first turn i guess guessed the entire thing (laughs) (laughs) like a little hoe but uh they also found four fingerprints on the room's phone that could be small enough to be a woman's fingerprints. They never found whose fingerprints they were. They didn't match any of the hotel staff or Owens. So that's another thing. Interesting, I guess. What about the prostitute? Sex worker? Sex worker. Thank you. Sorry. Yeah, you should be sorry. I don't know. They didn't say. <laughs> they yeah. just were like, yeah, we know a girl has been in and out of here, but we're not going to test her fingerprints to see I, if maybe she knows anything. I guess not. And then another thing they also found was that Roland T. Owen doesn't exist. He doesn't exist in Los Angeles. He doesn't exist anywhere. That's not a person. It's the mafia. I'm convinced, Emily. It's the mafia. Yeah. It's not It's not a person mm-hmm. that existed. But uh, they put the address out and um, like the guy's description, obviously. Mm-hmm. And there was a woman that called and said hey there's a guy that looks exactly like that that lives 50 miles southeast of kansas city and uh like matches exactly but there's like lead after lead after lead nothing really came from anything i mean this guy was he had a brutally yeah beaten and battered and he had a cauliflower ear he had a like a hexagon scar on his temple like it was very specific Mm mm-hmm but nothing was making sense, and police were, like, investigating everything. They even went to uh, the nearby hotel that Owen had complained about to a Soptic. Mm-hmm. And whenever they went there, they claimed no Ronald T. Owen ever stayed here. But there was a man named Eugene K. Scott that did stay here with the same Los Angeles address and the same room requests. Mm-hmm. So, (laughs) yes, they start to put together that Ronald T. Owen seems like an alias and is not actually his name. And he probably goes under a few other aliases as well. And so tip after tip, they aren't able to identify the body still. Uh And then on March 3rd, the case was printed in the paper that they were going to be uh, burying the body in Potter's Field the next day and holding a service. Okay. But the next day, when it was supposed to happen, the funeral home received an anonymous call 
from an unknown man who asked the funeral to be delayed so there could be a service at Memorial Park Cemetery next to Owen's sister. And uh, the funeral home director was like, uh, I'm going to have to report this to the police. You're yeah. gi- like, you're giving me a lot of info right now. Uh-huh. Like, you're saying you know this guy and his sister. So and no one has come forward to identify him. Right. And the guy was like, yeah, that's fine. I don't care. And then being the curious person that the funeral director was, he asked what happened. And like, oh, do you know how he died? Mm-hmm. And the man on the phone stated that uh, Owen had been engaged to a woman and cheated on her. And the man on the phone was simply getting revenge and had the sting set up at the president hotel to kill him. Damn. And then hung up and that was it. And obviously the funeral director let the police know about it. And the service was actually postponed. And on uh, March 23rd, the funeral home received a letter with uh, $25 wrapped in newspaper to cover the expenses, which are trying like in our time, $25 is about $500 okay. for the funeral. But they have no idea who it came from. And then two other envelopes that were identical to these ones were containing $5 that were sent to a local florist for them to make an arrangement of 13 American Beauty roses and for them to be sent to the service with the note attached to it stating, Love Forever, Luis. And they had no return address, so they have no idea who they came from. They also were never able to trace back the call made to the funeral home because they found that it was made from a payphone. And so they couldn't really do anything. That's weird. It's a doozy. Yeah. And uh, either way, they just still had the funeral service and almost no one showed up. It was only the minister and then a few police. The case still remained a mystery to everyone. And uh, the picture continued to kind of circulate around the U.S. in hopes of finding the family and true identity mm-hmm. of this person because they still want to let the family know. And finally, about a year later, a woman named Ruby Ogletree in Birmingham, Alabama, was given the American Weekly newspaper, which showed the picture of who she identified as her son, Artemis who had left with a friend to hitchhike out to California in 1934, but she was really confused because she was still receiving letters from her son. They ended up being able to confirm his identity identity as Artemis Ogletree, but why was she still getting letters from a dead person, you may ask? So... Whenever he left, Ruby had started receiving handwritten letters from her son, like, the entire time. But early in 1935, which our story starts with him in January of 1935, the handwritten letters switched to being typewritten letters, which she thought was weird because he didn't know how to type on a typewriter. And who was the friend that he went hitchhiking with? What's the name? So the friend that he went hitchhiking with, they never connected to it. Damn. I was like, "Mm, maybe they like ran out of money. And this Don guy was the one who ended up killing him and taking the rest of his belongings to keep hitchhiking to California. No, they never connected him with anything. Here I was thinking I was about to solve the whole entire puzzle. And uh, so these notes were handwritten, not handwritten. They were used on a typewriter, which she thought was weird. And she was like, hey, this doesn't make sense. And the other thing that was weird was that they were, in the nicest of ways, more unsophisticated than what he normally wrote. Hmm. So she's basically just saying whoever was starting to write these is stupid. Yeah. But obviously your son is like forever away and you're just getting these notes. So she was like, oh, you know, whatever. And then in May... So this is like months after his death. She doesn't know it, though. She receives a letter from him stating that he was going to Europe and his ship was sailing that day. 
and it was uh, two different letters. Mm-hmm. One of them was like a confirmation of his travel or something like that. And um, both were sent from New York City. Okay. So whoever this is is sending them from New York City. And then a couple months later, in August of 1935, she receives a phone call from a man that said Artemis saved his life in a fight. It was a gruesome fight, and uh, he lost his thumb in it, so he wasn't able to write any more letters. And he also couldn't talk to her because he moved to uh, Cairo in Egypt uh, because he married a wealthy woman. And... um, I guess, moved, and from there, he couldn't contact her anymore. But um, Ruby, I guess, was on the phone with this guy for, like, 30 minutes, and she said that he just seemed crazy and irrational. Yeah. And so I guess she kind of told the police about it, but they didn't connect it to anything again because this is the 1930s. And uh, with all these things, still nothing really added up, and one major question they had was, who is Don? Because mm-hmm. we've heard Don twice yeah, in the Yeah, that's why I was like thinking maybe Don was the name of the hitchhiking friend. Nope. What they do and think... And is it Don like like D-A-W-N mm-hmm. as a female or D-O-N male? So it's Don as in uh, Don uh, Kelso is how he would okay. write his name. And uh, it was in 1937 in New York City, police arrested a man named... Joseph Ogden, who uh, had killed the guy he was living with and tried to hide the body. And they found out he was living under an alias of Donald Kelso. (gasps) Right? Dun, dun, dun! This guy had uh, several records of being uh, arrested and in prisons and uh, also in two asylums. One of the asylums being in Birmingham, Alabama. Damn. Donald Kelso also had matching handwriting to Ruby's letters. All of them. All of the letter, the handwritten ones from Kansas. And uh, all of the signatures in Kansas City hotels under the name of Don Kelso. Because you would have to, you know, do your signature to check in. And, uh... There was also one of the hotels in Kansas City that had a similar incident that he had stayed at that hotel that they know of under that alias. And at that time, there was an incident where a waiter was left strangled to death and naked on a bed, but they could never find who did it. And they also didn't have enough evidence to ever convict him of anything other than the roommate that he was living with and murdering that guy. So it's like, this is one of those cases where like, they know who done it, but they can't say who done it. Mm-hmm. What the fuck? I told you, it's a crazy story. Things are like all over the place all the time. The whole hotel room floor elevator thing threw me for a doozy. Well, I think whenever it's the elevators and the hotel floors, it always throws me because I think a lot about like the Cecil Hotel mm-hmm. and that whole thing and how weird that whole situation was where it's just. Anytime there's, like, a weird elevator situation, I'm like, I don't... Why? Because whenever I go to a hotel, I go from my floor to the lobby and back to my floor. Uh That's it. I don't go to any other floors ever. So whenever people are like, oh, yeah, I'm just going from floor to floor to floor to floor, I'm like, ah, how? Why? Doesn't make sense. Always bring a buddy. Always bring a buddy. Always bring a freaking buddy. But now the hotel is actually owned by Hilton, and it's the Hilton President Hotel in <laughs> Kansas City. And uh, Faith, so you're gonna stay on the tenth floor. Uh, Faith, if you're listening to this, uh, can we please stay there on our road trip? It's kind of expensive, but I think it's worth it. I think it's worth it because what if there's little ghosties? You love the ghosties. Are there going to be ghosties? He technically didn't die there on property, though. Yeah, but, like... His soul might be trapped there, though. <laughs> I'm just saying. Who flippin' knows? But, yeah, that's my story of Ronald T. Owen, or better known as Artemis Ogletree. Ogletree. Okay, well, <laughs> with that being said, now we're going to talk about my story, which is about a child murderer. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> 
Just We're taking a in. hard left turn. So this story I kind of just stumbled upon because I was very curious um, about the child, the child murderers, child serial killers. Because it's always like I remember in my psych class watching the um, very famous, like she has schizophrenia and all. Like I cannot remember her name, um, but watching videos about her and it's just always interested me because a lot of people like to argue the whole nature versus nurture thing for a lot of these serial killers which we argue the same thing whenever we're looking at some of these cases that maybe they weren't given that chance because of the situations that they were in but like i feel like there's only so much nature and there's only so much nurture that it's just very interesting it's just very interesting because then sometimes it just doesn't make sense. So this story intrigued me, obviously. So born on May 26, 1957 to Betty Bell and Billy Bell, Mary Bell was born. And Betty Bell was a 17-year-old prostitute and a child herself because she had Mary Bell at the age of like 16 whenever Mary Bell was born. And no one really knows who Mary Bell's biological father is but mary bell grew up thinking that it was billy was it who knows but billy bell was a non-present father to say the least with a criminal background of being an armed robber he was just really well known in his area for being a criminal so with both being with both parents not being equally parenting (laughs) and with billy constantly being in trouble with the law and betty constantly leaving mary to go to glasgow is what it's called glasgow for sex work mary was kind of like tossed in between family members kind of just not very well taken care of because this is all happening in scottswood in england What does that mean to me? I don't know because I've never been to England, but it's a very, what I gathered is that it's a super rundown town where crime is not really a new thing. It's like crime is constantly always happening and that's what they're surrounded by. I guess you could call it like the ghetto. It was a, it was a low income area. So hearing police sirens was not really like a surprising thing in this area. So obviously Mary didn't really come from a stable home and there is this one account It hasn't been, like, confirmed, but a lot of Mary's family members recall, this is so fucked up, Betty standing outside of an abortion clinic and, and I put giving in hand quotes, giving Mary to another woman standing outside. So obviously, I don't think Betty was in the right mind to be, one, a parent, to to have birthed that child yeah i feel like that's that's an easy argument to make yeah i feel like that one's a pretty good assumption yeah and there are also a lot of times that the family recalls where the family members strongly alluded to the fact that possibly betty had harmed mary in a way that would take care of her get rid of her um look like an accident but obviously it never worked because Mary Bell still lived, still lived, which hearing that like breaks my heart. Cause I'm like, <sighs> what kind of situation do you have to be in? I'm a mommy. Like what kind of situation do you have to be in to think that that's the only way to not have a child? If that yeah. makes sense. Like abortion is one thing. Trying to give away your child is another thing. But trying to harm your child, like, I would never, never, ever, ever in a million years. So I don't know what kind of situation Betty was in. I don't know if Billy was maybe abusive and this is why, all that kind of stuff. But this is what was kind of going on in Mary Bell's early years. Not a stable home. Her mom was out working. Dad was constantly getting um, arrested and in trouble with the law. Things not looking great. Things not looking great. So Mary 
gaining a reputation herself in her early childhood at school, would often be caught vandalizing and stealing, and was also known for being a compulsive liar, and she was even accounted for attacking other children. Oh, love that. Yeah, we love that for her. And she would get very violent with these other children. It's not just like teasing and kind of stuff like that. Like she was attacking other children. Which there were even times that Mary would even voice her desire to hurt other people and children. But for some reason, this just like went under the radar and nothing was ever further done. And this could have been just the area that she was growing up in. They just didn't really have the time to really like think about it. Or maybe they were like, eh, she probably hears that crap at home and she doesn't really mean it. We don't know. Right. So who knows? On May 11th of 1968, all the assumptions, all of these assumptions of what she might be capable of surfaced in a nightmare of events mary and norma bell which they are not related at all it just so happens that they had the same last name were playing with a three-year-old boy on top of newcastle air raid shelter and the boy fell and was severely injured but the incident was written off as accidental hmm. Hmm. there were no cameras obviously and they don't really know what happened he just accidentally fell off of the top of this building hmm. on may 12th the mothers of three young girls informed police that mary had attacked and choked their children she was interviewed and lectured by authorities but no juvenile charges were filed they just kind of like smacked her on the back of the hand and was like stop doing that or i'm going to tell you mommy and daddy and she said bet on may 25th two boys playing in an old abandoned house found the corpse of four-year-old Martin Brown lying in an upstairs room. Mary and Norma Bell had followed the boys inside and had been ordered out when police arrived. Because obviously, why were kids just going into an abandoned house? Someone phoned the police, and whenever police arrived, everyone kind of like scattered. With no obvious cause of death, it was assumed that Martin Brown had swallowed pills from a discarded bottle found nearby because drugs were also a really big thing, obviously, in this low-income area. But later on, it came out that possibly, well, we all know, but we think that Mary worked alone in that situation and probably forced him to take those pills. What? What? Yeah. <laughs> It was, it's, she's very manipulative as a person. On May 26th, sorry, Norma Bell, Norma Bell's father, so the girl that she's been hanging out with, caught Mary choking his 11-year-old daughter, so he slapped her in the face and sent her home. So this is the day after she's killed someone? This is the day after that she's supposedly killed someone. They don't know yet. Right. But the police find a corpse after she's been there. Okay, and she's mm -hmm. how she's she's this is the day of her birthday. So the day before ah! was was whenever she killed Martin Brown. And then the day of her birthday, May 26th, she was caught strangling Norma's older sister. Happy birthday. I'm going to kill you. Yeah. Later that day, a local nursery school was vandalized, which we all know who probably did it. Police discovered notes that read, and I quote, it doesn't make any sense. Basically, I think what she was trying to say is, fuck off. We murder. Watch out. Fanny and faggot. Oh. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And we did, Merton, we did murder Martin Brown. Fuck off, you bastard. Four days later, Mary Bell appeared at the Brown residence asking to see Martin the boy that was dead reminded of the tra tragedy by her by martin's parents who answered the door oh my god she told his grieving mother oh i know he's dead i wanted to see him in his coffin you think they just keep the coffin with the boy in the house what where do you think the body goes i mean she's what she's 10 11 uh-huh but hello so super freaking weird and this is the all of these events are happening the week leading up to Mary's 11th birthday and some of these events even happening on her, the day of her birthday. So, first of all, my question is is where are her parents? Yeah. Question 1. Question 1. 
Two, is this a cry for help or a cry for attention? Yeah. Because some kids, even whenever they don't get positive reinforcement, they would rather have the negative reinforcement than nothing at all. Yeah. Because whenever Norma Bell's father caught Mary strangling the, the sister, sent her home. Did she go home to her parents? Did she tell her parents? Did Norma's father phone the parents and let them know? Probably not. But like, it's just so, it breaks my heart that she didn't have anyone there to at least discipline her whenever, you know, these things were just going awry and, you know, she didn't have enough, she didn't get enough attention. So now she was seeking it in other places. Right. Or was she just evil? Yeah. (laughs) Because that statement is just evil chilling it's so freaking like could you imagine being the grieving mother and being like bro what 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 did you just say hello so all these violent acts leading up to her birthday and even the day of her birthday and two months later seemingly nothing happens she's still doing what she does running amok vandalizing you know loitering outside of nurseries and doing the whole thing they are caught loitering outside the vandalized nursery from before and police end up picking up the two girls norma and mary and and dropping them off at their house which here's another opportunity that we can get parents involved but they just weren't there. They yeah. just didn't want to be there. And this is the same day that three-year-old Brian Howe goes missing. A search starts immediately, and Mary Bell told Brian's sister that he might be playing on a heap of concrete blocks that had been dumped out by a nearby <laughs> vacant lot. Which, <laughs> she's 11, so like... <laughs> that's my favorite i think that's my favorite he's just playing by a heap of concrete you know kids 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 but like why would a three-year-old be over there doing that by himself but in fact he was discovered there and among the tumbled slabs he was dead found dead the victim of manual strangulation so Whoever did this, did this by hand, not by ligatures or anything like that. And his legs and stomach were both mutilated with a razor and a pair of scissors that police recovered at the crime scene. Wow. When the medical examiners look over Brian's body, they determine that it must have been committed by a child since little amount of force was used against the boy because the cause of death was strangulation. But the force used to strangle the boy to kill him was not strong enough to leave marks on his neck like a normal strangulation murder would be because it takes a lot of force to i don't know kill Kill someone someone via strangulation and there were also slashes all over his body with an n written in on his chest slash stomach area and then with a different they could tell that a different hand was used same razor and it was corrected to an m which would make sense for Norma and Mary. So sad. And his penis was also mutilated by the razor, which, side note, what the fuck? Also, <laughs> like, like, razor cuts are painful. Yeah. I don't and they were, like, all over his legs and bodies and, and body and all that kind of stuff. And I really hope, obviously, I don't want this to ever happen to a child, but I, I hope he was passed by that point you know what i'm saying like i hope he was not alive for that i doubt it i know um once the police determined that it must be a child who was the assailant questioning the surrounding children in the area began and everyone's stories matched up except for mary bell and norma's whose story both changed twice like they both just like switched it up right and in court december of 1968 norma was acquitted to due to her awe-eyed look and she was like terrified the entire process and she ended up breaking down and explaining that mary forced her to watch mary kill brian and made her participate in the crime so whether mary actually participated in the crime or not they're not really sure just because again we have 
two children telling a story. And I don't know if you ever listened to a 10 or 11 year old tell a story. It's just not always super clear. You know what I'm saying? They don't have the correct vocabulary to really depict what what might have gone down. Right. And Mary Bell, who looked unremorseful the entire time, was psychologically examined and determined to be, and I quote, highly intelligent, manipulative, and dangerous. Like, bruh. I mean, yeah, I'm not surprised. That's what I'm saying. I'm like, uh, yeah, she's intelligent enough to, first of all, kill someone. Yeah. And you kind of have to be manipulative to get someone else to kind of like go along with it with you. Kind of like William Bonin. Yeah. How he like just strung along all these different like helpers. Super manipulative. Not very impulsive whenever it comes to it. Now, was she smart enough to get rid of the, you know, murder weapons and all that kind of stuff? No, but she did it. Mary Bell was convicted of manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility and the jury taking their lead from her diagnosis by the court appointed psychiatrist who described her as, you know, the classic symptoms of psychosis, psych, psych, she was crazy. Um, (laughs) the judge, Mr. Justice Cusick described her as dangerous and she posed a, and I quote, very grave risk to other children. Obviously. Yeah. And she was sentenced to be detained at Her Majesty's pleasure, because this is in England. Right? Oh, the I was queen. like, Majesty. The Queen. You know, the Queen. Effectively, and indefinite sentence of imprisonment. So whenever she got convicted, they were like, she ain't never getting out. She dangerous, and we're going to keep her in jail forever and ever at 11 years old yeah which is crazy she went down as one of the most like one of the most memorable child criminals in england and still to this day she's she is way up on that list and she was initially sent to red bank's secure unit aka jail prison in saint helens lackenshire the same facility that would house John Venables, one of James Burglar's child killers, 25 years later. So it's like this place was for like really, really, really bad kids. It's like this is where they sent them. After her conviction, Bell was the focus for a while in the media and also in German media as well because they were like really close neighbors and her mother repeatedly sold stories about her and often gave reporters like writings and and like photos and stuff saying that like it was from mary bell but it actually wasn't she was just posing it and gaining the money from it um in 1977 she briefly escaped from more court open prison where she had been held since her transfer from young offenders institution into an adult institution. She freaking escaped, dude. But they caught her. And <laughs> her penalty was a loss of prison privileges, which that's like basically outside time, going to work out, social time in like the little common area, all that kind of stuff for 28 days. So for a month. That's all? Yeah. That's it for escaping. And in 1980, Bell, age 23, was released from, I can't say it, Askham Grange Open Prison, having served only 12 years, 12 years, and she was granted anonymity, including a new name. So she was given a new name, new, you know, identity, whatever, so that she can go out into the real world and no one will know what she did. And she's an adult now, too, so she looks probably completely different from when she yes. got convicted, so no one recognizes her either. Yes. So she ends up living life, or whatever, and Mary Bell's daughter didn't know about her mother's past, because obviously she had a new name and everything like that, and it wasn't until 
Bell's location, Mary Bell's location, had ended up being discovered by reporters, she and her mother had to, like, flee their home. Yeah. Because they're like, uh. Um, and whenever they did flee their home, they fleed their home with bedsheets over their heads. Because they just, like, that's how much press was there. Yeah. Whenever they figured out who she was. And... Belle's daughter's anonymity was only originally protected until she reached the age of 18, which I'm assuming she probably had a birthday and then ended up becoming public knowledge. And that's how they ended up finding her. However, on May 21st of 2003, Belle won a high court battle to have her own anonymity and that of her daughter extended for life. She was like, I'd never want my daughter to have to go through this again because of the things that I did. I want my anonymity to be extended and my daughter's. And she ended up winning that case. So I cool mean, on that. For the daughter, yeah. yeah. Like, not for you. You should rot. But yeah. like, like, people should know what you did because that was fucked up. But whatever. Maybe she grew out of it. I don't know. And any court order permanently protecting the identity of someone is consequently known now as the Mary Bell Order. I feel like. That shouldn't be it, but... Yeah, it's fine. And in 2009, it was reported that she had become a grandmother. So, like, my thing is, is, like, after 12 years of prison and her escaping once, they were like, mm, yeah, I think you've grown out of it. I think you're good. Enjoy the world again. No, you shouldn't be allowed to enjoy the world when you've ended it for so many people. You killed a four-year-old boy and a three-year-old boy. Brutally. You shouldn't be allowed to live the world. No. No. You should be allowed to rot, and that's it. Yeah. So my story took, like, a hard left turn from yours. Yeah. <laughs> There's, like, a definite ending. We know what happened. All that kind of stuff. But, like, so interesting to me, like, the nature versus nurture concept, especially yeah. when we're talking about this case. It's like, yes, she was born into a bad home, yada, yada, yada. So, like, maybe that's the nature side of it. And then on top of it, she didn't get the nurture. Yeah. So it's like, are people born evil? Or is it just the situations and the upbringing? Because I think everyone has a little bit of evil inside of them. Mm -hmm. And we never know what's going to make us snap to, you know, let that side of ourselves take over. So I'm just, as a child, like, that's why it kind of just, like, puzzles me that as a child, she was already making these strides into becoming, mm -hmm. she could have been an insane serial killer. Oh, yeah. I'm sure. If she would have started killing, I think, when she was an adult, she would have been a crazy serial killer. Like. But she started young. So yeah. So she got caught young. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. if she wouldn't have started yeah, 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 killing, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think she would have been, like, a crazy serial killer. If she had killer. just kept it at petty crimes until maybe, she, like, 16 or 17. Until she was smart enough to realize what evidence is and mm -hmm. stuff like that. And, like, how to actually lie. Like, obviously, she was making, like, little white lies here and there. And she was known as a compulsive liar. But, like, obviously, her lies weren't very good. She literally told Brian Howe's older sister, like, oh, yeah. Last time I saw her. I saw him was playing on a heap of concrete at a vacant lot. But don't look. Yeah, but don't look. I'm like, what why you would you even say that? Like, they would have found him anyway because he was close by and it would have led to Mary Bell, I'm sure. But like, why would you say that? It's like she wanted them to know. It's just, I'm not okay. This is why I don't trust children. And this is why girls from the age of, like, 11 to, like, 14 terrify me. That's they're valid. so scary. That's valid. They're so scary. You never know what they're capable of. And no. they're so mean. They are. <laughs> like, don't talk about my outfit, please. <laughs> I'm trying to look cool. I'm trying to look hip. Don't talk to me, please. Yeah. So, if you ever... <laughs> I don't even know how to wrap this up in a way that Listen, makes sense. Don't. If, if, if you the phone ever, is off the hook. <laughs> if you ever go into a hotel room and you see a man or woman or they be person uh, 
laying in a bed naked and there's a really dark spot underneath them and Turn it doesn't the light yeah if, if it doesn't smell like poop then you know what you don't even have to turn on the light just like call your manager and tell your manager to deal with oh, it oh true you know managers what I mean? are supposed to deal with like, that shit like don't get traumatized just keep the light off and just you know uh-huh why was he asking them to turn on the light so that like they could so maybe see they could and they see, but my thing maybe? is like why didn't he just say something yeah was the person that was harming him still in the room the who world knows? may never know who freaking knows yeah and know who your children's friends are they do something bad tell tell the other parents tell the other parent who cares if that other parent is like judgmental and like watch your own kid don't don't be worrying about mine then like there's a reason why my parents would like make sure that they met the kid that i was going over to the sleepover with and my parents met and talked to the parents like for like an hour or so before my parents would even like leave the house after dropping me off and constantly be in contact with me they're like you gotta call me at 8 8 p.m before you go to bed and first thing in the morning, whenever you guys wake up, give me a phone call. Just say, hi, I'm okay. This is where our plans are for today. Come pick me up at X and Y, Z time. Yeah. Cool. Cool beans. I can do that. And as a kid, I was like, oh, so mom, she's just my friend. But now I'm looking at the world like there are child murderers out there. <laughs> yep. So know your children's friends. Get a manager. Get a manager. <laughs> When in doubt, get a manager. <laughs> and don't, don't sleep, sleep alone. alone.